it was uh, spring 2008, and I was in my final semester of my undergrad degree at Cedarville University. And as I was there, I was in this class called Anthropology and Angiology, which is a mouthful to say. And I was in that class, and I had my phone sitting next to me, and all of a sudden my phone rang, and it was my dad. And I said, oh, I'll just ignore it, send it to voicemail, call him after class, like we all do, and we're busy. And, and then right after I, I put him to voicemail, he called again, and that's when I knew that something was wrong. And so I, I left the class, and I called him back, and before I could even say anything to him, he was pr- uh, hysterical on the phone. And I said, oh, something is really wrong. I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, well, your stepmom, Norma, uh, she's really sick. I said, what happened? And she said, well, she got the flu. And for all of us, usually the flu is you're down for a day or two and you can come back. But my stepmom, Norma, she had rheumatoid arthritis. And she took a medicine to help her with the pain, but a side effect was a compromised immune system. And so when she got sick, she really got sick. But this time, she really, really got sick. And she was admitted to the hospital, and she was not doing well. And I told my dad, I said, Dad, do you want me to come home? And the school was three hours away from my home in Sandusky. And and he said, yeah, I think you should. And so I thought, wow, that's, that's not good. So I go back into the classroom, and I tell my professor, and my professor stopped class, and he prayed for me. Now, it's a Christian university, so that's pretty cool, but just to do that meant so much to me. And I got my books, and I ran across the campus because my class was on the other side of the campus where my dorm room was, and I ran inside, and I just piled up as many clothes as I can and put it in my bag, and I jumped in the car, and I took off. Well, as I was driving home in those three hours, I got another phone call, and it was my dad again, and again, he was very, very upset. I said, Dad, what happened? Well, my dad's a truck driver, and at that time, he was working over the road, and he was away, and he was about three or four hours away, so he, too, was getting in around the same time I was, and he beat me there, and when he walked into the hospital to go see his wife, there was a code blue over the hospital speakers. Now, my dad did not know at the time, but it was for my stepmom. And by the time she, he got upstairs to find where she was, she was already in the ICU, she was intubated, and she was in a coma. So my dad heard about her being sick, and the next time he was even able to speak to her, she was in a coma. And it was just a really, really difficult time. I remember going home that Thursday and walking through the next few days, and it felt like a blur. And I was praying, and my friends were praying, and my school was praying that Norma would make a full recovery. But unbeknownst to us, what took her uh, into this coma-like state was she was in septic shock. And if you know anything about that, um, it's not good. You can come out of it, and I've known people that have, but... Also, when you live with a compromised immune system, uh, it's not good. And so I remember one time, it was a Sunday right after church, my whole guys' men's group came up and surrounded my dad and myself and we just prayed for us. It was such a big deal for us. And I was believing that God would heal her. And as the week continued on, she was getting worse and worse. I remember um, one of my best friends stayed the night with me. On Wednesday night, we slept on the floor of the waiting room in the hospital. And Thursday morning, when we woke up, the doctor came out and said, uh, it's time for you to say your last goodbyes. And so we walk into this room, and, 
and I'm standing with my dad and standing there with um, my stepsisters and to say goodbye to a formerly very, very healthy person who went from having the flu to dying in one week was horrific. And what complicated it even more so was that the day that she died was Valentine's Day. So you can imagine just the grief and, of course, the reminder of that day was just so hard. And holding my dad up as he said goodbye to his wife was something that I'll never forget. I remember my dad asked me if I would be willing to speak at her funeral, and I've never done that before up until that point. And I remember I was sitting at my laptop trying to type out words that would speak to my broken dad and broken stepsisters and uh, broken mom and broken sisters and brothers, just family. I said, what am I going to say? And I, since then, I've done 20 to 30 funerals. I've lost track. And it doesn't matter if it's a three-year-old, which I've done, a 20-year-old, or a 94-year-old. <laughs> when you're sitting with a family and you're trying to put into words what they're trying to feel, it's really, really difficult. And one of the greatest privileges that Pastor Ryan and I have as pastors of this church, and it's a privilege, is to serve people in funerals. And I say it's a privilege because you get to sit with people. It's almost like hallowed ground in their greatest grief and their greatest vulnerability and to listen to them and try to memorialize their best friend or their spouse or their child. But it's not easy. And sometimes you don't know what to say. And if you are here today and you have uh, incurred death, you know that it is so hard to put into words what it feels like to lose a spouse or to lose a child or a grandchild or a brother or a sister or a best friend. And I can even see it in some of your eyes today how deep the pain is for you. So what do you do with it? What do you do in death? What do you do in grief? Because if you haven't faced it right now, you will face it sometime. And that's not to scare you. It's to say, this is our reality. And frankly, we don't talk about it enough. And when we do talk about it, it's usually when someone like Kobe Bryant dies or when we have tragedy in our community like we've had over this last year in poor Clinton, death after death after death of even children. What do you do? How do you go forward? One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is between Jesus and a family. And in this encounter with God, which is the message series that we're in, Jesus handles death so, so appropriately, he addresses the reality of it, but he also points to hope. And that's what I want to do this morning, to really look at death and grief and how it really affects us, but also how there is hope moving forward. So I want to uh, turn to John chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, open them up, look it on your phone if you want. They'll be on the screen for you as well. But I want to look at this conversation, this encounter with Jesus and a family. It starts in John chapter 11, verse 1. The gospel writer John writes this. He says, A man named Lazarus was sick, and he lived in Bethany with his sisters, 
Mary and Martha. Now, Jesus was very close to this family, and he had a great relationship with them. But unfortunately, their, friend, well, their brother and Jesus' friend Lazarus, he was sick. And Mary and Martha knew that Jesus would want to know about this. And so we see two verses later that sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is sick. Now, Jesus is one of those guys that when you expect him to say something, he usually says the complete opposite. And Jesus comes out of left field with a response to hearing about Lazarus's sickness that is just so surprising. He says this, he goes, when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And so he's saying, look, I know Lazarus is sick, but he's not going to die. But what's confusing, at least it is to me, is that a few verses later, we see that Lazarus is dead. And he, Jesus says, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. And he says, let's go and see him. So what is it, Jesus? You said Lazarus won't die, but then we read that he died. What, is it this or that? And what if I told you it's both? What if it's true that Je uh, Lazarus died, but he doesn't have to remain dead? And what if that's the hope that you and I have today? What if, yes, life will eventually end in death for all of us, but we don't have to die? Now, Jesus, he's telling this to some of his friends, but his other friends, Mary and Martha, have no idea about this side conversation. All they know is that their brother is dead and they're broken up about it, just like you and I would be if we lost someone that we loved. And so Jesus, knowing this, goes to Mary and Martha, and his response to both of them are different, but it's beautiful what he says about death. And this is a passage that I oftentimes, when I do a funeral for a loved one, I, want, I, I use this passage because it's so clear on what Jesus says about death and what he's done to overcome it. So I want you to look at Jesus' first response to Mary. Now, when you're looking at the story, his first response actually is to Martha, but I want to skip just ahead and look at Mary first, then we'll come back to Martha. But here's what Jesus says to this grieving sister. Verses 32 through 35. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. I love that vulnerability and honesty. How often have we been in a situation, maybe a loved one is sick, or we're in the midst of an impossible situation, and we need God to do something about it, but he just isn't showing up. And Mary's like, look, I know you were out doing miracles and doing some incredible things, but you weren't here. I needed you here. Because when you show up, amazing things happen. And if you would have been here, I bet my brother would not have died. How often you and I have said that in our lives. God, if you just show up right now, it changes it. I love that she was able to look Jesus in the eye and say, this is how I'm feeling. But then it goes on. When Jesus saw her weeping, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. They told him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus asked, where have you put him? 
And then this beautiful verse, verse 35, then Jesus wept. If you've ever been with somebody, been friends with someone, or your family member with someone that their loved one dies, if you're like me, even though I'm around death all the time, sometimes it's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know what to say because you want to help, but anything you say doesn't feel like it's helpful. And so we end up saying a few phrases uh, like this. They're in a better place, or we want to help, so we say, let me know if you need anything, or you're surrounded by people who love you, or though it's hard now, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I want you to know, a lot of times we say these things because it feels good to us. But I'm telling you, the person who is grieving these statements are not helpful. I want to walk through these with you to show you how they're not. First of all, they're in a better place. That may be true. And that's great. And that's why we have hope. But for those people who are going through grief, they are not in a better place, according to them. Because the best place that their loved one can be is right next to them. The best place their loved one can be is when they walk through the door They would be waiting for them. The best place they could be is when there's a family gathering that they would be occupying a seat. The best place they can be is when on a Sunday morning when they come to church, they're hand in hand with that person. That's the place they should be. And when we go to somebody and say, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, but they're in a better place. Reality is they are. But to that grieving person, they aren't. We gotta be careful that we don't say those things to those who are hurting. Another one is, let me know if you need anything. Many of you know that I lost my stepdad two years ago uh, in a uh, motorcycle accident, very sudden. And I remember standing up at the Sandusky campus next to my mom, and so many people said so many kind things, and we're so grateful. But probably the most repeated phrase that we heard then and, and still even hear now is, let me know if you need anything. And I finally, after hearing it, and can see how it affected my mom, I said, Mom, how are you feeling about that? And she said, you know, I know people mean well, but it's as if they're handing me a blank check. Have you ever received a blank check? I I have only done that like once or twice. Like, you fill an amount that you think is good, and you're just like, do I put a dollar? Do I, I don't know what to do with this. When you say that to somebody, it's like you're handing them a blank check. And they don't know what to do with it because they don't even know what they need. Their lives have been broken up into millions of pieces and they're trying to put it together. And when you say, let me know, I'm telling you they're not going to let you know because they don't know what they need at that point. So here's what you do. Instead of saying, hey, let me know if you need anything because that makes us feel better, we stop and say, okay, what do they need? Instead of saying, what do you need, you figure out what they need. So maybe it's this. You text them and you say, hey, I want you to know that I don't know if you have uh, dinner tonight, but I'm dropping food off. You can either eat it tonight or freeze it or whatever. It'll be on your front doorstep. Love you. Because they got to eat. And most of the time, people who are grieving aren't eating. They don't feel like it. And so just to do a gesture like that shows that you care. Or you know what you should do? You go to their house and you knock on the door, and when they open the door, you just walk past them with a mop and a broom, and cleaning supplies. Because I can tell you, they probably haven't had a lot of time 
to even eat, let alone clean their house. And you just go by. You don't even have to say a word to them. You just say, you will do whatever you need to do. I'm going to clean your house. And you do it and you leave. That's what we do for people who are grieving. We show up and we do what we think they would need. And, or you say something, like you're surrounded by people who love you. And again, it's one of those phases like, I know, but I want to be surrounded by my loved one. I'm not here anymore. Or the phrase that, ooh, we got to be careful with this one is, though it's hard now, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And that is true. Time does help, but time doesn't heal. And a lot of people, when you say there's a light at the end of the tunnel, what you're saying is eventually you're going to feel better. But there are people that I know who are grieving, who it's been days, weeks, months, years, and they're still struggling. And for you, you may say, this happened so long ago, but for them, it was their world when you and I go to a funeral, we oftentimes feel so badly for that person, and two days later, we forget about it, right, usually? For them, they don't forget. The light may be there, but it's so far down the road. We don't have to say those things. And you may say, well, what do I say? Well, we can't say much that's going to help. You and I don't have to fix the situation. You can't bring their loved one back. And so we take our cue from Jesus, and what Jesus does in this moment with Mary is incredible. In death, Jesus gives us and Mary in that situation his presence. Because what does Jesus say to Mary? Nothing. You know what Jesus says? He weeps. He goes up to Mary and he doesn't say, hey, everything's going to be okay. I can promise you He's going to be in a better place. I mean, that would have been good from Jesus to say, right? He knows. He doesn't say anything. He weeps with her. And what I love about that is that for some of us, when we do lose a loved one, we think that we have to be strong. And I will often ask people who are thinking this, I'll say, how are you doing? And they'll say, I'm fine. I go, how are you really doing? They're like, I'm fine. And I go, no, you're not. And instead of just letting it go, I said, you tell me, how are you feeling? And they said, I just have to be strong. And I said, why? He said, because my family member made me promise that I would be, or everyone else is falling apart. How can I be strong? And I look at that person, you know what I say? I say, if God wept, you get to weep. God crying and entering into the sadness shows us that we are made to do that as well. That we are called to let go, especially us guys who think we have to be strong and we've adopted this, this masculinity that says we have to be strong and, and never show emotion. And if Jesus can show emotion when he lost his best friend, you and I can do that as well. We cry, we weep, we struggle. And God's good with that. And he gives us his presence in the midst of that. He enters into your sadness as if it's his own. And I love that. So what I want to do for the next few moments is I just want to share a few verses of hope on the screen. Hope in the form of God showing up when you need him the most. And whether you're grieving now or you'll grieve later because it's coming I'm hoping these are a reminder of the God who is present even in your darkest moments. God says, I will not abandon you. 
gives power to the weak and he gives strength to the powerless. One of my favorites that I have to look at for me often, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. It doesn't mean that God isn't close when we're doing fine. But what he's saying is when you're not doing fine, there's a presence about God that he gives you that you can almost experience it tangibly. That's the presence that he gives us in our brokenness. This is unbelievable to me. The psalmist says, God, you keep track of my sorrows. You know them intimately. You collect all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. When you are crying and you feel alone, those tears, though they are cascading from your face and dropping on the ground, they are not just doing that. They're also being collected by God. He's standing right there, and he sees every tear that comes down from your face. How beautiful is that? He gives us his presence in the midst of our grief. And then he says this, a promise to the disciples before he leaves, but a promise to us in our grief. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with you always. Jesus wept and Jesus weeps. He is in it with you right now. And I'm so grateful for his presence. But what's interesting though, if you read this passage, it, something should stick out to you. Because Jesus not only weeps, he shows another emotion as well. Look what he says again back in our verses that we read. He says, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping and saw the others wailing, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. A deep anger. Jesus was angry. But Why? Why would Jesus get angry in the midst of death? Is he angry at Mary? Angry at Martha? Angry at Lazarus? No. He's angry at death. It's the same reason you and I get angry in death as well. The grieving process, there's five steps, and people think you go this step, this step, this step, this step, and this step. And I... As one who's experienced grief, and you as well, no, 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 grief is a ping pong ball. You go here, 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 here. And you may be doing fine. I I was talking to my mom a couple weeks ago, and she was doing well. Not great, but she's managing. And all of a sudden, she had this tidal wave of emotion hit her. And I couldn't believe how it just knocked her down. And it just reminds me that grief is not linear. Grief is all over the place. And it can hit us at any time. And when Jesus is grieving the loss of his friend, he gets angry. And it's the same reason you and I do as well, because life is not supposed to end in death. That's why you and I, whether it's a nine-year-old or a 90-year-old, we don't get used to it. Even though I've done all of these funerals and I expect to do funerals because I know people are going to die, I still am shocked. And I see family members who are just shocked, even though the person was sick, even though they were expecting it. Still, that anger, they're not here anymore. It wasn't supposed to end this way. That anger is the same anger Jesus had. It wasn't supposed to end this way. And what's so amazing about Jesus 
As he, he looks back in the quarter of times and he looks back to the beginning of time and he sees humanity and, and he sees that we're supposed to have this perfect relationship with God. And the Bible uses this Hebrew word shalom to describe its state with God and with people. It was perfect. Nothing can come in between God and people and people and people. And then when Mary, or excuse me, Mary, when Adam and Eve chose to be their own God and disobey God, there were consequences to that. And one of those consequences was death. There was separation from God. And in the end, it, all of our lives were finite. We end in death. And when Jesus looks back at that, he could have said, you know, you chose that. We choose that. But Jesus says, even though that's a consequence of death, I'm so angry that it's supposed, it ends this way that I'm going to do something about it. And that's the greatest thing about Jesus. Though he gives us his presence and he's intimately aware of our struggles, he also gives us his promise in death as well. But when he's talking to the other sister, he doesn't cry with her. He gives her hope. He said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Then he asked the question, do you believe this, Martha? And she responds, yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. I love this. Remember how we said at the beginning, is Lazarus going to die or isn't he? Like you said he's going to die, but then he doesn't. Like you're confusing me. And what Jesus is saying here is, yes, life ends in death, but we don't have to die. Is that not hope-filled? Y'all sleep? <laughs> Those who believe in Jesus, who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for sin and guilt and shame, but also died with death itself, three days later, defeated death, meaning that those who believe in him don't have to taste death either. How cool is this? You and I are alive right now, and when we take our last breath, those who believe in Jesus, we think it's our last, but really it's our first. We don't have to taste death because Jesus tasted death for us. That's incredible Hope. I love what uh, Tim Keller, he says this about this whole situation. He goes, the witnesses said about Jesus, wow, see how he loved Lazarus. But really, we must behold that he loves us. That he became human, mortal, vulnerable, killable. Why? Because it was all out of love for us. Jesus was angry about death, and that spurred him to love us by dying for us so we don't have to die ourselves. I'm just telling you folks, you and I, we can't get used to this. We can't be like, yeah, Jesus died for me. I'm not going to die someday. Like, that's unbelievable. We should be living with this living hope all of the time. That even though we face death in its eyes, and it's horrible to go through, those who believe in Jesus... We don't have to taste it. We will die, but we won't. And that's a promise that God has, not just for you, for your life, but also when you are coming alongside of a loved one who ends up dying and you may grieve, but you also should not grieve as those who don't have hope. 
because we have it. And those who believe in Christ. But I will say this. When Jesus tells Martha all these things, he doesn't say, okay, Martha, this is it. This is it. This is the life. This is the situation. He makes it into a question. He's like, do you believe this? That's the thing that's beautiful about God's love. It's unconditional and it's a gift, but it must be received. Martha had to say, all right, let me think about this. My brother's dead. Do I believe in Jesus that this dead man will live again? And she said, yes, I believe. You have to wrestle with that question as well. Do you believe this? Is this something that when you look at Jesus, do you believe that he lived and died and rose again for you? I think you have to wrestle with that question. I think maybe the hardest thing, truly, that I have to go through with families is when I talk to them and they don't have belief in Jesus. And I've asked this question to them and I'll ask it to you. So what hope do you have? I mean, can you really live a naturalist life, which means you believe you just are born and then you just rot in the ground? Like, what kind of life is that? It'd be nice to know your life counted here and it counted for eternity as well because of Jesus. It's found in him. He has the promise. You have to accept it. Uh, not only our grief of losing a loved one, but also grief of losing a job, relational strife, Right? The list goes on. There are so many circumstances in life that produces this grief. It's in the midst of that grief in which we can encounter Jesus because he's with us. He weeps with us. He grieves with us. He cares for us. He cares for us so much that he, he died on the cross for us. Even though we are faithless at times, he remains faithful, right?